Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the Members Forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKinty. This is episode 50 of The Shift, recorded on August 17th, 2020. Find out more about the show on YouTube and Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKinty. I'm on Twitter at McKinty, or find all of my episodes and other work at theshiftnow.com. My guest on the program today is author, political activist, and citizen journalist Eric Burroughs. Derek overcame a troubled youth characterized by drug addiction and depression issues that ultimately resulted in incarceration. After spending his 21st birthday in jail, he resolved to make positive life changes that placed him on the path toward personal and political liberation. For the last 15 years, he has been dedicated to researching and reporting on current events from outside the corporate government narrative. His work reflects a dedication to the ideas of freedom with a refreshing connection to spiritual and psychological healing that is uncommon in the arena of political philosophy. Teaming up with co-author John Vibes, Derek produced the Conscious Resistance Trilogy that reflects a modern extension of the concept of agorism, first put forth by the late libertarian thinker Samuel Konkin III. These ideas are further extrapolated in his most recent solo work entitled How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State in which Bros continues to elaborate on the agorist concept of resistance through non-involvement in the corporate government agenda. He advocates the creation of a marketplace separate from systems of distribution controlled by what he calls the predator class, utilizing gray and black markets to circumvent the dominant economic paradigm. Not stopping at producing books, Derek is a prolific journalist as well. His most recent blog post can be found at thelastamericanvagabond.com, where he has recently covered the current coronavirus pandemic, as well as myriad other current events from an alternative perspective. His recent documentary film, The 5G Trojan Horse, describes the dangers of microwave proliferation and his attempts at educating the City Council of Houston, Texas, while they were insistent on fast-tracking the new technology despite the lack of any quality safety assessment. This activism eventually compelled Derek to make a run for mayor of Houston in order to spread the word. Finally, Derek and fellow activist John Bush have developed the Freedom Cell concept in order to network like-minded individuals internationally into a non-hierarchical, peer-to-peer organization where the conscious agora can become realized through individual and collective action. Become involved and discover others near you at freedomcell.org. I would like to urge my listeners to find out more about Derek and check out all of his work at www.theconsciousresistance.com. And I'd like to welcome author, activist, journalist, and documentary producer Derek Bros to the podcast. Thank you for helping to make the shift. All right, everybody. I'm here today with citizen journalist Derek Bros. Uh, it's been a little while. I've been wanting to get him on the show. I really love his work. I've probably been following you for 
five years or so. It's been a long time. I think I heard you. I was trying to remember on the Corbett report years ago and then just uh, been following you ever since. I'm really happy to see that you're with uh, Ryan over at The Last American Vagabond now. So uh, really easy to catch all of your work over there. Um, and why don't we just kick it in? Uh, you want to give uh, my audience a little bit of your history and what you're up to and what you're doing, and then we'll we'll get into the, the meat of it today. Sure, man. Thanks for having me on, and uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, uh, as you mentioned, kind of an investigative, freelance investigative journalist. I'm based here in Houston, Texas, been here most of my life, and uh, will not be here for very much longer, uh, considering a lot of things going on in the world. But my work has been based in Houston for the last 10 years. Started uh, just getting involved with activism 2009, 2010, kind of waking up to the Federal Reserve System, waking up to the banking system, a lot of those types of issues, getting into health for a while and, you know, just going down all those rabbit holes. And it really did completely alter the course of my life and the path I was on and started an activist group called the Houston Freethinkers and was really active between 2010 and 2016, involved in a lot of big protests and just city council meetings, confronting Henry Kissinger, all kinds of different things, building community gardens. We had a couple of community houses that I lived in and we did, we did skill shares and, uh, you know, garden days and uh, music, music events and all kinds of stuff, just really trying to be connected and plugged into the community and spreading the ideas that were important to us. And about 2012, I met uh, John Vibes, who is my uh, writing partner for my first three books. And he helped me get connected to some people, just different websites and people in the independent media. And that's when I really started getting paid to do my writing. I was kind of just at first blogging on the Houston Freethinkers website about things that were important to me. And we would aggregate other news and just kind of had a website like that. And then I met John and I met also uh, my buddy Nick, who used to run the anti-media, which was a really big uh, website and Facebook page until we were purged in 2018. Uh, and basically, we uh, we started working together and I started writing articles and over time developed more of a, an interest in really understanding journalism because I didn't go to school for journalism and don't have a, you know, a quote unquote traditional background in it. And so I have taken journalism classes sort of on my own and and tried to learn what I could from the mainstream as well as just learning that you know if you've got a camera and if you've got dedication and curiosity you can go out there and be a journalist you know in the truest sense of what that means uh, I also got a, a radio show which I still have today it's called Freethinker Radio we started in 2011 and have been doing it since then in the last two years or so we joined 90.1 uh, KPFT which is on the FM radio here in Houston so it's really cool because I get to push the boundaries about what's you know allowed by the FCC and the station, which is mostly progressive left-leaning people. Um, but uh, the station manager who welcomed, welcomed us on board basically said, you know what, your guys' opinions are probably going to piss off a lot of our core listeners, but you know it'll be good radio, so let's do it. <laughs> you know, and and they know that we the show's Freethinker Radio, right? So we have people call in and tell us that they hate everything we're talking about. And they wish they would take us off the air. We have people say, thank you for talking about these ideas, you know, and we let everybody express their opinions. And sometimes people are angry, but it's it's a fun, fun opportunity. But yeah, so I did that. And then when I, prior to that, I started working for the radio station. I started going out and doing in the field reporting, uh, call either calling in on the scene from some, you know, some event or recording and producing my own stories and then sending them into the radio. So I got a lot of more like mainstream journalism experience after coming more from the street activism side of things and, and uh, now just try to really dedicate my 
journalistic side of my work towards true investigative fact-based journalism and of course you know healthy speculation when necessary when needed um and i've written five books uh do public speaking and yeah so i mean i have a whole other story of how i got into it prior to this you know that involves drug addiction and going to prison and stuff and that was kind of the beginning of everything i'm on now because my work the book series and the website is called the conscious resistance and that to me is not just a kind of a catchy name or anything but it's really the meaning of the philosophy that i try to promote and live by and that is that the struggle for a more free and ethical world is not going to come from only confronting the physical institutions of power the government or the corporations or the families or the institutions or whatever we point our finger at but from also you know definitely that's a part of it but then the other side is working on our own healing and our own trauma and our own self-doubt and insecurities to do that individually and collectively to help us move forward, you know, because I, I do think if we just to get rid of the guy on the throne, you know, and just replace him with somebody else or we become the people on the throne, we're just as likely to fall prey to some of the same things if we don't do that deeper healing or shadow work, as some people like to call it. But, yeah, that's kind of the short version of who I am and, and what I'm doing. And these days, I mean, I'm producing documentaries, working on new books. Uh, producing YouTube videos, writing articles, as you mentioned, for The Last American Vagabond. And yeah. Yeah, you've been really busy. I really appreciate that you took the time to uh, have this conversation with me today, for sure. Um, so many places to go from here. I do want to point out that this um, this kind of shadow work that you're talking about, I, I think is something that is really unique that you bring to this whole scene. So I really appreciate that. We could get into that a little bit more and what you're doing at the Conscious Resistance uh, dot com and that whole network because I think it is really important that people I mean this we kind of get into getting into the news and then you you sort of get woken up to what's going on I guess if you if you get more into this sort of conspiracy theory or I like to just call it independent independent media um, but there does come a point I think in, in all of us where we have to realize that we need to be working on ourselves and that it's a personal journey to kind of get through uh, I guess what you might call this awakening process or this understanding that what we're getting in the mainstream media and in, in the education system isn't really an accurate depiction about what's going on in the world. Um, you want to touch on this a little bit more, like this kind of spiritual aspect? Uh, we can get into the, I, I, I want to kind of start with the new book too, uh, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State. So you could, you know, interrelate it to that and what's going on in terms of this technocracy that you see coming and, and what to do about that. Sure. Should we start with the, the personal work and then lead into the technocracy? Yeah, sure. Cool. Okay. So yeah, I mean, like I mentioned a moment ago briefly that my my journey, I mean, everything I just shared about my activism and journalism is 2010 to 2020, so the last decade. But um, the reason I came to the awareness of, I mean, the, the phrase really was kind of whispered into my head, like the conscious resistance just sort of popped in there one day and I had a I had a, after 2010, when I first had my kind of awakening experience and going through the freak out mode, I go, oh my God, this is about to happen. What I like to call the Alex Jones phase. I moved past <laughs> that and started thinking about solutions and like, okay, I'm going to form an activist group. I'm going to go talk to people. I need to pass out flyers. I was already a promoter before this. So it was very much kind of in my blood to get out on the streets and put flyers out and put up posters. And so I just started changing the, the message, you know, about what I was promoting and then also I started working with different uh, musicians and artists who were interested in doing an anti-drug war show, doing an anti-war show, you know, and, and 
starting to form like a community of activists and musicians and um, artists and we would bring out vendors, local vendors making their own stuff. And so it was really cool. I could start to see who actually gave a shit in the Houston community uh, and who was kind of like, yeah, it's not really, we're just here to play music kind of thing. So I already had some of that stuff going on uh, and I just shifted my direction. But after doing that for a couple of years, Houston Freethinkers music and all that in 2013, the summer of 2013, I kind of had like a deeper shift where I was just, going down the rabbit holes again and I had another three or four days of no sleep and just research and just going real deep and um if I remember correctly I, I was listening to a lot of David Icke at the time some of his real long talks and you know I don't agree with David on everything but there's definitely a lot of inspiration you can take from his mm-hmm. his speeches and stuff and so I just remember being really kind of engaged with what he was saying and over that period of not really getting sleep going all these different rabbit holes that phrase, the conscious resistance came to me. And it sort of helped me remember where my journey had began because in 2005, I was 20 years old and I had was just, I'd spent basically the whole 20th year of my life addicted to various drugs, uh, starting with crystal meth and, you know, going kind of all the way down until I was ended up locked up. And that was preceded by a couple of years of hopping around from drinking a lot and doing this and doing this. And, and it wasn't till a little while later, my life was I able to sit back and kind of reflect on this. At the time, it was all just a haze. You know, it's just chaos. I'm just bouncing around, going from one thing to the other. But I ended up getting locked up the week before I turned 21. And I was able to get myself sober before I, I went to prison. But I like I had already quit on my own. I ended up living in this crazy crack meth house. And I really committed that like, this is not the life I want. I need to get the heck out of here. And cannabis did help me. My, my anxiety was so messed up from just doing so many of these stimulants, you know, cocaine and crystal and all this crazy stuff that thankfully didn't fry my brain. And um, cannabis helped me kind of just get the, for about a week straight, I remember just like smoking a lot of weed and just telling these people, I don't want any other drugs. Please don't offer me anything. Just like, let me be, I'm really trying to get through this. And they respected that. And every day that passed, as I got a little more calm and kind of could hold my nerves together, I just started to see how insane the situation I was in and what the hell am I doing here? How did I end up here? You know, and I had a vehicle, I could leave at any time, but I just, I burned a lot of bridges, you know, including with my parents and it, it just felt like I had nowhere to go. After about a week, I decided, like, this is it. I got to go. I'm out of here. I got in the car, drove home with my family, told my mom, like, you know, I'm really trying to get my, my shit together. So please, like, whatever it takes, let me come home. And I got myself sober, but I was also, I owed some people some money. And I, more than even being addicted to drugs, I kind of had become addicted to the lifestyle of selling drugs and being around that and, you know, just that whole thing. And so I knew I could make some money really quickly buying some crystal and, you know, getting rid of that. And it's just one of those kind of stories of that one final time. And I ended up getting right. pulled over with all these drugs in my car and, and that was it, you know. And so spent my 21st birthday locked up in the county waiting to get sent to state jail and state prison. And uh, I did 11 months the first time, 2005, late 2005 into 2006. And then I was out for about five months, went back for another three months and was out for about a year. And then I did final four months. So in between 2005, 2008, I did 18 months and I ended up getting a felony for possession of controlled substance uh, and in you know finishing all that stuff out. But it was in that space when I first got locked up that I really started to do the reflecting and started to ask myself, like, how the hell did I get here? This place is not for me. You know, and the other thing is I grew up 
as a very young kid visiting my father in prison for his drug addiction. You know, my earliest memories are being five years old, going into a prison and seeing him there and having all these questions, trying to integrate these experiences as a young kid and, and hearing constantly that he was in jail for drugs, having no idea what drugs are, but I just keep hearing about these things. Whatever they are, they've affected my life greatly, you know? And I think it really just made me curious, like growing up, like I need to know what, what are drugs because they've got my dad in jail. Everybody's telling me they're bad. I don't even know what the heck it is. And, but you know, I, I just grew up with that experience. So here I am finding myself locked up at the same time he's locked up. It was a real kick in the nuts. It was a real gut check of like, wow, what am I doing? And I started journaling every day. I started, I got, I started to get my uh, girlfriend at the time to send me a chapter a day of the Buddhist Bible, the Dhammapada, and was really kind of integrating those lessons. And then my grandma sent me a book about like uh, Zen meditation, Zazen, and started meditating every day. And the journaling really helped me. I started noticing that like when I first got there, my handwriting was really, you know, in that everyday sort of fast paced kind of uh, uh, feeling. But then over time, as I'm in this prison and I come to accept, there's nobody here that can help me. I can call my mom, my girlfriend, my lawyer, whoever, like I have to accept I'm here. Like look at the calendar. I'm not going home for at least, you know, this amount of time. Uh, that's a very, it's actually a very empowering feeling, even though it's disempowering at first, because you have to really accept that like, wow, there's nothing I can do. There's nobody I can call to cry to dad, mom, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever to fix this for me. I'm here, I'm alone and I have to face this. And there's, you know, it's, there's a lot of fear and because you don't want to. I see people who are like they're on the phone every day talking to their family, just trying to hold on to that. But it slows your time down. So I had to accept like, all right, I have no control over what my family's doing, what my girlfriend's doing, whatever's going on out there. Just be here. Right. And that really did help me start to analyze my life and look back and see that a lot of my drug use was linked to my depression. And I had actually had tried to kill myself several times as a high, as a high school kid and that these things root back to my relationship with my father. So my, my point with all this is to say that like once I started slowing down and started looking at my own life and actually going through this process, which ended up turning into another one of my books, the holistic self-assessment is basically the kind of take people through the process I did when I was locked up. Once I started to do that, I started to see that there was these deeper roots of, of my trauma and it helped me let go of my depression and helped me let go of my desire to stick as many drugs inside of my body as possible and see if I could get happy happiness that way. And to start, like when I got out after all that, it felt like this cloud had been lifted. Like not only the cloud of just the haze of drug, drug use all the time, but the cloud of like depression and just heaviness that I felt I've started to be able to enjoy a sunset for the first time and just really be thankful for life and to start to kind of reconcile with my father and just tell him like, I forgive you. I'm an adult now. Like everything that happened happened for a reason. Please, you know, let go of that guilt that you have. I'm okay. And so, yeah, it started really a lot of my healing process. And that was before I ever knew anything about any of this stuff, you know? So that happened to me first, cool. 2005, 2008, 2008, I started discovering, hearing about anonymous and hearing about, the, and then, you know, led into everything else I was describing the Houston free thinkers, but that mm -hmm. happened for me first. And that's why it has become such an important part of my work. Whenever the phrase, the conscious resistance came back to me, it was this realization that like, I can't, ignore that other side you know i had tried i kind of had two different lives i had my actress friends and my meditation consciousness friends and i had been keeping them separate for those first couple years because it seemed like people weren't interested in the balance but uh, eventually it just became clear to me that they were the same struggle so yeah that's kind of that side of my work and i do think that it's valuable and i i it's been interesting to me to see that since i first started talking about the spiritual specifically like spirituality and anarchism and self-governance and stuff like that 
that since 2013, here we are 2020, there's a lot more people exploring that, that area of, uh, of philosophy and research. And that's really awesome to see. Yeah. And, uh, as far as the technocracy that, you know, many people are becoming aware of that we're facing, that we're dealing with, that we've already been facing, but that COVID-19 has only accelerated and given this sort of 24-hour, 24-7 excuse, just like 9-11, for whatever you want. You know, you can grow a police state right now at any rate you like if you say it's for COVID. That's basically like a, you know, a free pass for all the politicians and all the authoritarians. Uh, I put out this book January 3rd. First, I think, is when it was finally published throughout last year, 2019, because as a journalist, I've been writing about facial recognition technology for years, stingray cell phone surveillance, drones, um, heat detectors that can see inside your your, uh, house and tell how many people are watching, fusion centers, the Utah data, and all the stuff that's been going on. Anybody who's been paying attention can see the direction we're headed, like no privacy, complete erosion of individual liberty, and a lot of it powered by the big tech companies. So I was already writing this book last year, trying to imagine how the solutions that I promote, which is mainly opting out of everything you can and trying to be invested in morally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, et cetera, in better systems or either building them or supporting newer systems that already exist. And really started to think about, well, how does that work in a world where social credit scores are around, where if you say the wrong thing, your score goes down, or if you you know, do the wrong thing, your score goes down. So what's the answer to that for those of us who clearly are not playing ball and have our own, you know, thoughts and ideas about how we want to live our lives that don't co, you know, that don't really align with the the mainstream system, right? So we and I I try to be forward thinking. I try to think of what's coming next and how we can be proactive rather than just reactive, which is mainly what activism tends to be. Um, so I really started putting this book together that I wanted to explain. Um, what the philosophy of opting out, specifically agorism, counter-economics is about, and who Samuel Conkin was. I've written about it before, but try to expand upon it in the specific context of the technocracy, because um, you know Samuel Conkin, who is the founder of the philosophy of agorism, which comes from the Greek word agora, and it's been heavily influential on my work, uh, he died in 2004, and a lot of things he predicted have come to fruition, but he also had a, uh, an unfinished book that never got published uh, or you know, he tried to get published and he just couldn't find any publishers probably because it was fairly radical, especially when it was, he was trying to publish it in the 1990s. And he was already thinking about some of these ideas, but he unfortunately never finished it. We have his full outline. We have some finished chapters and all these different things. And as a nerd for his work and somebody who really believes in it, I decided, okay, I want to bring his work into the modern age, the digital age. How do you do these things? How do you opt out when you got facial recognition cameras everywhere? When you have, and, and I, I didn't even know immunity passports were coming, but now that's the question, right? How do we opt out with immunity passports? How do you do these things? He was already thinking about these ideas, but his work is sort of lost to the pages of history. You know, nobody really knows much about him. And this final book, I'd never even read it. So once it finally got put online by one of his friends, I decided I'm going to write a book that explains his philosophy and update updates it to the digital age and hopefully introduces it to new people then also addresses these questions of how do you do counter economics how do you be an agorist or somebody who wants to opt out in the, the digital age and the technocracy and um and then also in the i included his full final writing of everything for people who want to nerd out on that stuff but to me the answer is is clearly it is to opt out and to plan ahead and think ahead and whether that means you want to 
leave the United States or leave whatever country you are you are in because you think it's getting more oppressive, especially if you're in, say, New Zealand or Australia. Um, even if you think you want to stay there, you're not ready to leave. You can still start preparing for this rollout of technocracy, which is already existing by trying to get off their grid as much as possible, step by step, you know, not being overwhelmed by the, the big task that is. But also the most important thing is the community, the community aspect of bringing people together, because whether you're in the city, you're in the suburbs, you're in the country, you're out in the jungles, you're off on an island, whatever, having community of people to support each other, to lean on, to uh, get things done faster. I mean, it's really practical on that level uh, is, is going to be extremely important, especially because if we're all spread out, I mean, uh, Doug, I, you know, you're in California, right? I think you said yeah. you're in California. Yeah. yeah. So you're in California. I'm in Texas right now. We know people all around the country and it's great that we can communicate and share these ideas. But at the end of the day, if they come to your house and, you know, try to force vaccinate you or starve you out because you're not saying the right things or doing the right things or don't want to wear a mask, I'm not much help to you in Houston. You know, I can let people know, but we really need localized support, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's the importance of, to me, of, of like that is the answer. Whether you're going to go out in the out into the country or you're going to stay in the city, having some support system, whether you're neighbors or just down the road or even just in the same city, that when things are getting tough, you can count on each other. You can come together, and and we call those groups freedom cells, and, and I kind of expand upon that in the book as well. Uh, but I wanted it to be as direct as how to of a guide as possible, you know, giving various ideas. Of course, it's just the conversation starter. I, I can't think of every possible solution there is, but hopefully get people to realize like, hey, there's a need for, for this. Like a lot of people don't even really know what technocracy is. And some yeah. people, even I would say in the circles we run, might not realize that it's as urgent as it, it appears to be now. And, and like I said, I wrote this prior to COVID. If I'd waited a couple more weeks to publish it, I would have had to update it with including <laughs> immunity passports and all kinds of things in there. So, yeah, but um, that's kind of the gist of the book. And I do think that it came out in January and it's now more timely than ever. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is funny. It's like you said, I mean, when COVID came out, suddenly there was this whole other level of stuff going on that I didn't even know was happening. Like, I think we all had an, an understanding that there was this general move towards technocracy, but no idea how far along they were. And then you get all of a sudden there's COVID and it's like, what's really going on here? And you start looking peeling back the layers and it's like, oh my God, this is the stuff they've been planning for the last decade. And here's all the companies and here's everything that's lined up. Like you're talking about the immunity passports, the social credit scores, the, it's just, it, it becomes insane. Um, but I think before we get too deep into the COVID stuff, I still want to um, like really flush out some of these ideas about, especially the spirituality and then the anarchy. Um, I think for me, like I started out I guess basically as a kind of a, as a libertarian and then um, basically kind of just rejected the whole idea of government through Murray Rothbard initially. And then over time, I've actually become, because it's so fascinating in the world of anarchy, there are so many different ways to be an anarchist. And once you separate your, your mind, and I think there's uh, a spiritual component to, to all of this too. I mean, people are sort of, you know, they're engaged with the government and they believe that there's this authority figure over them. It's a psychological transition to suddenly go, wait a minute, this thing doesn't actually exist, right? <laughs> this is just somebody teaching me that they're, that they're an authority. But if I take responsibility for my life, then I can be my own authority and I don't need this, you know, this, this higher power uh, to tell me what to do. And maybe we can even build a civilization on on this notion that humans can just take care of themselves you know um so there's so many different places to go 
And then this was the fascinating thing actually about getting to know your influences in terms of um, this agorism, because I didn't know very much about it. I mean, I kind of gravitated, I, I learned a lot about more of the left-wing anarchism and then graduated more to calling myself, say, like a voluntarist. I think people should just be allowed to do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting somebody else. I mean, you know, and then working together in the community, there's all sorts of ways to do that on a voluntary basis. And that, and when I think about that, I, I get into a lot of the more left-wing uh, types of anarchy where I could see people working as long as it was voluntary, you know, they could be working collectively or cooperatively or in all of these different different ways of, of building a society that's not based on these top-down hierarchies and all of this. So there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe just kind of go into what uh, agorism is more specifically just for a little while and, and maybe comment too on some of the psychological aspects of just getting into anarchy in general and how that maybe opened your mind or, you know, allowed you to be more attracted to some of these more spiritual concepts. Yeah, definitely that, you know, there's so much in there, right, to, to get into. So it's interesting you mentioned Rothbard because definitely Rothbard is somebody who I can appreciate and, um, and had, and did have an influence on some of my, some of my, my views, particularly his time period, I, I would say mid sixties to, 65 to probably 68 or 69 ish maybe even into early 70 before the creation of the libertarian party which was when murray rothbard was the most radical when he actually was kind of part of this coalition that worked with sam samuel Konkin, uh the founder of agorism and you know they had a mutual respect for each other although Konkin thought that agorism would be limited or at least at his time was limited as far as mass appeal uh mainstream appeal I think Konkin's views over time have, have uh, are starting to pan out because he did believe in something that was going to be a generational change that we'll explain in a moment. But yeah, I mean, Rothbard was a huge influence for sure at the beginning of my anarchist journey, particularly that time period. Um, and also, I mean, beginning in 2013, I started to speak at speak publicly, and it was at libertarian events mainly. And mm -hmm. 2013 and 2016, very much involved in you know the liberty movement and uh, just kind of trying to put my ideas forward. John and I started releasing our books, our first book, Reflections on Anarchy and Spirituality, which explained this whole concept and also got into agorism and mutualism and tried to find some of those common grounds between left and, uh, I mean, I don't even like to divide them that way, but between the different right. shades of anarchism out there. And, um, and yeah, it really started developing. And it's cool because we're actually in the process of republishing the fifth anniversary edition of the Conscious Resistance Trilogy as one book. And we've gone back and, it's cool to see my thoughts five years ago, especially in anarchism, which most of them, I think I'm kind of now like a little embarrassed of some of them. Like, oh man, it was a really like uh, basic understanding, not to say that the information wasn't good, but just now I have such a more rich and full understanding, including what you're talking about, of getting to know these other schools of thought, right? And to really appreciate some of the good things and then also understand where some of the lines are of like, okay, this is where we part ways. You know, and I think that in my experience of being involved with the liberty movement who are mainly the anarchist variety of like, would just say voluntarist, which I think any true anarchist of any stripe, whatever their economic school is, is a voluntarist or otherwise you're an authoritarian masquerading as an anarchist. Right. Um, but you know, whatever the most, the anarchists that I knew were anarcho-capitalists or just libertarians or just voluntarists. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I appreciate, it. I definitely learned a lot in that time period, but I also started to see a lot of the limitations of their thinking and how many of them were very, stuck in just another layer of the left-right paradigm, just mm. always fighting anarcho-communists or whoever else, right? And how I started to realize that neither side 
really read each other's work and really understood each other's thing, you know, philosophy. I, I grew up with my, the activism that I was involved in, in the early years was very much in a left anarchist culture of having like small bookstores, you know, info shops where people are holding concerts and, you know, there's food, not bombs and like all the things that I really appreciated, which were people like taking action and getting involved. Whereas my experience with a lot of the libertarians and anarcho-capitalists were they're more philosophical and I enjoy both sides of it, but it just seemed like the limitations of anarcho-capitalists where they talk about how this society could exist, but not many of them are actually actively out there trying to show people that it can exist now. Like they're just like, Oh, one day we'll get there. Whereas at least the left leaning anarchists and sort of radicals that I knew were out there feeding the homeless. They were out there like, you know, doing activities in the community, getting organized. And so I learned a lot from that. That like was a very influential part of my, um, philosophical upbringing yeah. but again i also could recognize the limitations i recognize the limitations of just their thinking and and yeah so i started to discover all these different things these nuances and Konkin to me fits kind of again it's a spectrum but he fits fairly well in the middle like mostly he leans a little more left than some anarcho-capitalists but he's not like this far leftist who believes like the violence is necessary at the moment or just different things like that and he also has a right. very nuanced view of property and just different things that I, re I really appreciate. But at the end of the day, he's a voluntarist libertarian who believes in the non-aggression principle. You know what I mean? And he yeah. just might give weight and explain things in certain different ways. But his philosophy, which he called agorism, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, comes from the Greek market, Greek word for marketplace. And so, again, he was a he, you could call him a, a left libertarian. You could call him he liked the term new libertarian because um, he was very much playing on the language of the 60s. Again, when they, him and Rothbard were a part of the – Rothbard was a little bit older, but Konkin was actually a student in the 1960s counterculture movement when there was a lot of libertarians and radical leftists like the Students for a Democratic Society, the Young Americans for Liberty, Young Americans for Freedom. And you know, there's a big thing in 1968 where they're burning draft cards. Like The libertarian movement pretty much started there, the American libertarian movement. And Konkin was around for that. Rothbard was like – 10 years older than everybody kind of advising them and, and was there as well as Carl Hess and some other really awesome anarchists of the time. And they were trying all kinds of different tactics. You know, Konkin used the terminology of the time. He called himself a new libertarian because there was the new left that was emerging and he was trying to differentiate himself from the libertarians of the time uh, who were associating with the conservatives you know like there are today there are many people who think that libertarianism is exclusively a right-wing conservative kind of thing and they they eschew working with leftists that largely comes from rothbard because of rothbard's later opinions where he said like there's no hope in the left you know we got to work with the conservatives right uh you know there might be some truth to that but it's just interesting how the things that were done there in the 1960s set the tone for what we're still dealing with here as freedom seekers, you know, and anarchists, et cetera, 70 years later, 60, 70 years later. So it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, in that time period, as um, Konkin was seeing all the protest movements and seeing people get beat up by cops and seeing some of the, the uprisings and seeing it go nowhere and seeing the anti-draft movement, then eventually a couple years later, that, that movement in some ways leading to the creation of the Libertarian Party in 1971, he saw that as a complete selling out of the principles that Libertarian was founded on. It was it was the most vocal critic of the Libertarian Party from the very beginning. And he termed it partyarchy, the idea that the 
that you could achieve, you know, liberation or freedom of the party system. And uh, so he started doing some research and some thinking, okay, if I'm going to reject voting, not only as in his mind, it was an ineffective strategy, but he did view it as inconsistent with, uh, you know, libertarian principles taken to their fullest extent. You know, he would also maybe use the term uh, radical libertarian for himself and others. So he rejected voting on moral standpoint, as well as the strategic standpoint. And then he also rejected violence and said, like, not only is, are we outgunned and outnumbered, but it's just not a moral strategy. We're not going to gain mass support by going out and being terrorists, is essentially what they would call us. Even if we feel like our arguments or our use of violence is justified, we would be demonized. You know, so he's like, you're not going to win that way. And so he eliminates voting, eliminates violence, and starts thinking about what are the other options that I have, what are the other strategies, and he kind of comes up with a, a third way or a middle path, which again to me relates it back a little bit to spirituality because the Buddha also talked about the middle path as mm -hmm. well, about not having the extreme materialistic world of being of the world so much you get lost in it, but also not trying to starve yourself or you know completely deny yourself joy in life as if it's somehow getting you closer to enlightenment you know he, he talked about the middle path so Konkin was sort of on the same idea and his middle path that he saw was rather than voting them out rather than trying to commit violence the goal then which should be to try to siphon power away from them whenever possible to opt out of their systems particularly the economic system by trying to use alternative currencies and get away from the central banking system and all that but also you know, the, the idea of voting with your dollar, people understand it. Well, I don't like Walmart, so I'm not going to shop there. I don't like McDonald's or whatever, but you can apply that to the government itself. You know, try to resist paying taxes whenever possible. Try to limit your use of the dollar or you only use cash so that, you know, there are no taxes being paid and things like that. Whenever you have the opportunity doing different types of exchanges, but also the moral support and the spiritual support, I would say, of this system as well, not just your money, but your time, your energy. You know, all, so and I apply it across the board. It's not just a government thing. So if you don't like the way the banks are robbing us blind and funding all these crazy projects, we'll find a way around using them or working with them and different ideas like that. That's really what counter economic, what he termed counter economics comes to. And again, he using the terminology of the time you had the counterculture. He was trying to tap into that. He called it the counter economy. And it's also sometimes known as the informal economy or the underground economy. Mm -hmm. the, the French call it system D. And it's actually a very well-researched topic that I do go into into how to opt out of the technocratic state and give some examples, as well as my third book, Manifesto of the Free Humans, and show that the underground economy, the counter-economy, what Konkin realized back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and is even more true now, is that that's actually the largest economy in the world. It's bigger than any one nation, the economy of people who are untaxed, who are unregulated. And much of the world in the quote-unquote third world lives that way which is why these people want technocracy because they want everybody to have a digital ID so that they can have you know digital currency to track and trace because all these people out there are doing exchanges that are not going into the tax farm or whatever yeah. you can't have that you know yeah that's that's interesting because i've um yeah i've been thinking a lot about this myself lately just in terms of how many people actually are not i mean there's a lot of and i i tend to kind of take this into more of a and when I think about the different forms of consciousness, I think about like the, the people that have been influenced, say, by the Roman Empire over time, and then the indigenous people <laughs> who are still, believe it or not, there's still a lot of indigenous people around and they're not they're not participating. Um, and I came to the realization that like, my God, you know, there's a lot of, of people who are in just still indigenous. I mean, I was raised within the system, I think, and you were raised within the system, but I've learned a lot about, you know, in, indigenous thinking, too. 
um, and other ways of thinking that are outside of, of this way of thinking that I was brought up in. And it's actually surprising to realize that like, I mean, I think from the point of view of if you, whatever you want to call it, the colonizers or, you know, this hierarchical system that's been sort of growing and growing over the last two or 3000 years, you know, from, from the top of that pyramid, they're seeing that there's a lot of people that they still want to hoover up into the system. All of this, this, um, like what you're, what you're talking about, the, the counter economy, the underground economy that's happening all, there's still so many people that aren't participating and what a better way than, you know, to suddenly have to, well, everybody's got to get contact traced, right? Everybody's got to get everybody's got to participate in the system. Now there's no, nobody can spend cash. It's all digital currency. I mean, just going more and more into this so that they can, they can kind of hoover up the last of the free people, if you will, <laughs> that are still outside the system. Um, but I mean, I, you know, and I, I did kind of want to bring up with you all while I have you here that I, I mean, I live here in Northern California where we've just been making this transition. Like this economy was essentially an agorist economy for the last probably 30 years because of the cannabis industry here which just went underground. We had a totally separate economy. It was almost, I mean, it was probably 80% cash, you know, <laughs> um, the whole community here. Uh, it was like, it's something that wasn't necessarily spoken about, but it was, it was something that was, I mean, almost everybody participated in, in one way or the other. And it was, you know, the biggest cash crop in the area for sure. And so it's been actually really fascinating to see what's happened with legalization because the corporate entity is is moving in and taking over a lot of the small farms and that and that counter uh, economy that so many people were happy to participate in is now getting uh, reabsorbed into the larger corporate structure. So you can see how, you know, how I guess how easily it can be done. Uh, actually, the farmers that are doing the best around here now are the ones that still are outside of the system because the corporate yeah. system produce they, they put up so many barriers to entry it's so expensive to now to participate you know 10 years ago you could throw a couple seeds in the ground and make a few thousand bucks at the end of the summer um and now if you're trying to participate in the legal system it's you know a hundred thousand plus dollars to even you've got to hire the lawyer and the accountant and have hundreds of thousands of dollars invested you know yeah. You're starting a company. Yeah, and like you, like you said, as far as the barriers to entry, I mean, this is basically – Konkin didn't just choose the counter-economy and stumble upon it because he thought, like, let's get away from them. Like, obviously, that makes sense. But because he studied it and could see that, particularly in his time, he was looking at the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union, the harder they right. clamped down, they still had a huge black market. Just like with North Korea, people are still funneling things in through USB drives, movies, and whatever else. Like, no matter how hard the state clamps down – People will find a way to participate if they got to go back to the old currencies, if they got to barter, whatever they got to do. If they, you know, cash can become illegal, but people, there still will be a market for it. And, mm -hmm. you know, Konkin showed in, in a lot of his research that, as you were mentioning, that once things become legal, which is basically the state getting involved and the state control of the market, that's what right. he would call the white market, you know, whereas the counter economy, you have the, the gray and the black market. Some people hear black market and they think of, mobsters and violence but Konkin being a voluntarist and believing in the non-aggression principle he considered the gray and black market basically all the the economic exchanges that are either illegal or they're illicit because you don't have permits you don't have licenses etc that the state says are illegal but not you know are not causing any harm or inflicting on anybody so that would be selling cannabis for example if it's illegal in a certain place or even if it's legal but you're doing it under the table that's gray market right and then selling um, maybe weapons to somebody or just all kinds of different things that don't necessarily have to be 
criminal activities, but they're things that have been criminalized by the state, whether they're actually violent or not. And so his idea was if we can do as much of our exchanging in this counter economy, in this gray and black market, people are going to start siphoning power, economic power away from the state and hopefully lessening their opportunity for taxing people to, to go to war, to do all these different things. But not only that, but that as your neighbors and your friends are seeing how happy you are kind of exiting from these systems and maybe you're, you're getting to keep more of your money in your pockets and thus in your own community instead of going to the corporations you were talking about or mm-hmm. go into the government, you know, tax farm, whatever it may be, people are going to start to understand that, oh, well, this seems like a better way to live. And his idea was that he kind of described these four stages society would move forward. And he believed that as the state becomes more aggressive, which we're seeing constantly and definitely right now, that the process, it, it kind of wakes some people up, which I think we are seeing with COVID too, is yes, there's a lot of people who are totally buying into this, but more people who are also like, whoa, this is kind of extreme. Maybe I'm actually ready to look into this. And that's just sort of a, a reaction that happens. And so for those of us who are already opting out and already trying to get off grid or promote these solutions, the people who are just starting to pay attention, they see that and they're inspired by that and his idea that that would just progress and progress exponentially. Of course, he also predicted that the state wouldn't just you know, go silently into the night and that at some point the state would try to clamp down and, and let, you know, he says something like, you know, uh, launch a last dying breath a, a attempt to smother out the agorist counter-economic um, you know, movement. And he said, surviving that is what he defined as the revolution, being able to survive and actually defend ourselves against the last little vestiges of the state as it starts to lose power, becomes weaker, would prove that then we are capable of defending itself ourselves and thus the state would kind of be a weakened uh, weakened entity if it still existed at all after that then it would be definitely it would be like relegated to just one territory or something it's like all right if you want to go under that state and then bring out new ways to organize you know yeah. so you know he and, and like i said a lot of the things he predicted can't have come true he died four years before bitcoin he predicted a lot of uh, digital currencies and he had a lot of the language you know he was seeing the beginning of computers and was also a sci-fi nerd so he had theories and ideas on what was coming and and sure. um but yeah so you know a lot of that stuff is is becoming even more relevant because i believe that once we figure out what the immunity passports look like, whether it's a QR code on your phone, like some countries are doing, or it's a literally a digital certificate, papers, please kind of thing you got to carry, there will become a black market for that. People will figure out how to make a fake version of that, make a copy of it. You know, there will be people who will be willing to take bribes for private flights to help people travel because they don't want to go to the airports with the body scanners and the temperature scanners and the face masks and whatever else they're rolling out, right? There's going to be people like there are in some parts of the world, like Mexico, where I'm headed, like it's not a perfect place. Of course, there is no perfect state in the world that is not oppressive in one way or another. But the corruption in many ways is already out front and open. So you know that when you're dealing with a cop, more than likely they just want a small bribe and they'll leave you alone. You know, So if you need to get across a border or do something that the state says you can't, you're likely to be able to still you know, grease somebody's palm and get it done. You know, And, and that to me is like, it's a, it's a little bit more explicit, which I kind of prefer rather than this veil of like, sure. oh, we're like, <laughs> you know, we're here for your safety, but we're really all corrupt behind the scenes. Like, at least I know these people, they don't, they, that the individual cop or whoever I'm dealing with, he doesn't make that much. And he would probably like to have a little bit extra money. And if I'm like, hey, look, you know, we don't have passports here or we don't have whatever the deal is, like, yeah. here's some money. 
those things happen, you know, and that's a part of the counter economy. That is an economic exchange between me and another individual who's deciding in this moment it benefits him and it's a mutual benefiting uh, situation to take this cash and to, you know, turn, turn the other way and, and look as we pass through. I mean, those kinds of things will still happen as this COVID-19 rolls through. But I do think that my, the whole point of my book and kind of trying to push agorism is the more prepared we are, the more forward thinking we are, the more ahead of the game we are, the better we're going to be suited as things progress. If we just sit around and wait for it, then all of a sudden, oh no, social credit scores are here. Like, and you don't have any other options. Like I said earlier, we're going to get locked out. Yeah. I mean, I could very much see there almost being two classes, like a brave new world-esque, where there's those that got the vaccine and are allowed to participate. And then there are those who have chosen to step back. They're not taking the vaccine. They're not participating. And they have to just figure out how to how to go it on their own. Or Savages. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like you're talking about, I mean, figure out how to organize with the other people that aren't getting the vaccine, that aren't participating in the system. And, uh, and see if we can, you know, go it on our own and make it work. And uh, hopefully even be, you know, like you're talking about, uh, you know, show, show other people an example of how happy you can be without participating. They make it seem like, I mean, and they try to make everyone as dependent as they can on this corporate system, you know. Um, but to be free of that and to be able to take care of yourself as, as a free human being, um, you know, that's going to make anyone happier i you know it's just as part of human nature to want to have that kind of freedom and and the ability to take care of yourself on that level i mean i think that's where maybe some of the spiritual ideas come in because it is just a happier healthier more holistic lifestyle to live sustainably and be able to take care of yourself rather than be dependent on these powers that be for your food your medicine you know your the currency that you're using how you're 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 trading economically um giving up your freedom to these people uh is not is you know is just not part of human nature i don't think i think ultimately people are going to be depressed and and unhappy and you're seeing i mean look at what you're seeing in society today with everybody having to 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 take these depression medications uh and you know these soma drugs if you will and and continue on working for the system because uh, it's not just a, it's not a healthy, happy, natural environment for people to be in. So it's, it sounds like a great tactic to me to just be able to separate from this system, at least as much as you can, you know, and participate in this counter economy, make it as healthy as you possibly can. And if the time comes where you can't interact or you don't want to interact any longer with, with this larger economic system, you don't have to, you have choices, um, and it's a nonviolent way to just separate yourself out of it all. So, you know, we're not exactly. confronting anybody directly, which like you're talking about, I mean, one of the things, you know, these, the system obviously has more guns and more money than anybody else is ever going to be able to amass. So thinking about going directly against it is a suicide mission, but figuring out ways around this direct confrontation, I think is, is they're real valuable tactically in terms of just saying, Hey, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my own thing. (laughs) Exactly. And I want to add to what you just said a moment ago, brother, that I think it's also, you know, we're talking of course about the technocracy and everything that's changed because of COVID. And I wrote the book because I want people to be very real about what's going on and to think, I kind of emphasized several times in the book, like think about this in practical terms, not abstract terms. Think about tomorrow they announce you know, you can't come to work anymore unless you've got the vaccine. Your kids can't come to school. You can't travel. You know, you can't do this. Or, you know, you get a notification that your social credit score is too low because you've been listening to the shift with Doug. And right. you know, just, just being associated with that is bringing your score down. 
people are going to make real decisions. Our friends and family are going to call us and tell us they love us, but they're sorry. They can't associate with us anymore because they need to get this promotion. They yeah. need to make sure that they can make that next trip that they can travel. We And I'm sorry. I love you. But unless you're willing to stop, I'm just going to have to stop talking to you because my score keeps going down. You know, these are going to be real things that are already happening in China that we're going to have to, uh, you know, make do with. And so there's definitely a sense of urgency and a reality check there. But also, I think it is important to, to recognize that, like you said, moving away from these unhealthy systems is just a better way to live. So even if let's imagine, take away the doom and gloom, crazy government, oppressive government lurching over us all the time scenario. There's no, let's imagine there's no zombie apocalypse, no economic collapse, none of these sort of feared things going on. It's just a better way to live. We don't want to be plugged into their, their systems and plugged into and dependent on them. And, and like you said, taking their version of medicine and health and, and history and science and all this mm -hmm. stuff to me, it's, it, it's, even if I'm going, because I'm in the process of, of acquiring land, I'm starting a permaculture course, actually a six-month permaculture course tonight to get certified in permaculture to teach it to other people to embrace the solutions that I see and that I think are the key forward. So whether or not, in, like if somehow people wake up and this whole thing is reversed and they're not able to let the technology go in the same direction, because this is the way that I think is going to allow me as an individual to live most in line with my values and principles and most in harmony with the planet. So it's a good thing too. You know, we shouldn't only focus on, or I think it's a good thing to remind ourselves that we shouldn't get stuck on, you know, why we're doing this. Like we're doing this because we're worried about what's happening. And that's true. But we're also doing this because this is something that's probably better for us. And so whether you are moving to the country, staying in the city, like you were saying, Doug, being able to opt out in whatever ways you have available to you. And in the book, I kind of describe a process of like, don't be overwhelmed if you, your goal is that you do want to be off the grid and you want to grow your own food and you want to catch your own water and all these kinds of things. But you're living in the city and you're, you know, in debt and you're paying, you know, electricity every month. All these kinds of things. Start small. Start taking different steps to start making that reality, and you will get there. Even if there is a sense of urgency at the moment, you have to do what you can where you're at instead of being overwhelmed and recognize that this is. It might be somewhat difficult. It might cost money, time, energy, et cetera. But in the long run, this is your life, your health, you know, your future that you're talking about. So right. why not make an effort to, to, you know, accommodate yourself in a way that's going to be most beneficial for your own growth? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've got to think about it in the long term. I know it's a, actually kind of a personal problem of mine that I, I feel like there's so much, I'd, I would just want to change everything, you know, and uh, it's not, it's not wise to try to think that you can make such drastic changes all at once, but just wake up every day and make a practical decision. This is going to help me to kind of separate me from the system. This is going to make me more independent. This is going to be a healthier choice and, you know, do it day by day. It's just a better way to think about it. And then in a few years, it's amazing what, what you can accomplish. Um, cause it's so easy to get overwhelmed and it's already so easy. I mean, we already talked about, you know, and I know I've had my battles with depression and things as well. I mean, as you're kind of waking up to this whole social system, this corporate system, this colonizing force, whatever you want to call it. it. It's easy to get depressed. It's easy to feel anxiety already. And then it's easy to find escapes in, in drugs or cigarettes or whatever else it is, or too much TV even, and not, you know, and not um, every day making these little step forward so that you can start to advance a, a more holistic life journey that is ultimately going to be, be healthier. 
And I know something actually that you mentioned a lot. I wish more people use this phrase for the seventh generation, um, because thinking that far forward and thinking about your family that far forward, it makes it easier to take it one day at a time. You don't have to make a, a radical revolutionary change all at once, right? <laughs> you know, if you're doing it for the seventh generation, then you got some time. But like, let's let's try to set our, our intentions and do the best we can in the moment, and things will get better. So, yeah, and I also think that, uh, and this is kind of I, it's another for me a spiritual connecting to the anarchists is. Um, Konkin also talked about in New Libertarian Manifesto and, and about agorism that he believed that the the lies, and I, I agree with this, the lies that we're told about both voting and violence is that it's some sort of quick, rapid change, right? All you have to do is go vote, like you did your part, that's it, you can, you know, right. don't have to worry about it. Or all we have to do is just go overthrow this one guy and like get rid of Trump and everything will be better, or get rid of Biden, you know, it, those are lies, we know it, and they're, and they're, they're sort of sold to you as a quick fix. Whereas agorism is like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. I have to change my life. It's going to take time. You know, it, he, but he yeah. believed, as I do, that you can't really convert people to volunteerism on a mass scale. Like, I don't think there's one film we can show. We could just get everybody in America's attention and they see this 30 seconds. They're all going to be converted. It comes to people in different ways. You know, sometimes through like me going through prison, sometimes people just watch a documentary. Different experiences bring us to this, but it has to be a genuine thing that you find in your heart that you recognize, whoa, violence yeah. is wrong. These things are not right. And so Konkin did believe that the best thing we could do is to be an example. You put one improved person forward who's working on living in line with these values and you lead by example and that inspires other people as the same time we're pulling out of these systems and so over time we're taking away their power now again like that does not doesn't mean tomorrow the, you know things are better it's going to take some time and i do so i take this action and i think any action that we take to empower people with the understanding that i might not see and likely will not see the full fruits or results of my labor mm -hmm. in my lifetime and that if I have children or grandchildren, those sort of things that perhaps in their lifetime, and that's really what I fight for, right? And at the same time, the, the whole principle of seven generation, you mentioned, uh, you know, indigenous teachings. And, and of course, I agree with you that there, there's definitely still a colonizing force in the United States and around the world. And I am native on both sides of my family, but I didn't grow up on a reservation. I don't, I haven't been taught those ways. I kind of found them on my own. Uh, by going to Sweat Lodge and then ending up in Standing Rock and getting to meet different uh, tribes, particularly learning from the Lakota. And then the last few years going to the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma for Sundance and for just for medicine and for, uh, you know, um, for, for our rituals, you know, and, and getting to know that and connect on that level. So it's been really important to me. And that's where, you know, the seventh generation idea comes from, from the Iroquois. They're definitely one who are well known for mentioning it, but it's now become pretty much known. And I'd, I'd say most indigenous cultures have some version of that idea that, you know, we need to think not only about what we're doing here, what's right in front of us, but how are we impacting the generations after us, the ones we won't see up to seven generations and beyond, you know, and when you really do incorporate that principle into your way of living, I do think it can create just that alone. Radical change in the way that you do purchases you make, the decisions you make, you know, what types of governments you want to support or politicians, you know, and you really can incorporate that uh, along with respecting other people's self ownership. I feel like those two are just two key principles, you know, understanding seven generation and looking at life in that term and understanding voluntarism, self ownership. You own yourself, it's wrong for me to initiate violence against you. Like those two 
core principles can, I think, radically shift most people if they start living them on a daily basis. And then once you do that, it seems to me at least sort of natural to start recognizing that whether you call yourself an agorist or anarchist or counter-economist, whatever, that you start to recognize that these systems do not align with your values. And so it only makes sense that you want to pull out from them, pull away from them and support better things. You know, That's why I think agorism is so interesting because even if people don't understand or never heard of Samuel Konkin, a lot of people are already instinctively doing these things. They're already Absolutely. trying to get away from these things. You know, So yeah. yeah, so I just, I think it's interesting how, again, the spiritual seventh generation and taking things generationally aligns with, the Agora solution, you know, that take that it's going to be a generational change and individual change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, to try to tie this in, because one of the things I know, um, and I totally agree with you on this too, is just this, I'm so frustrated with the left-right paradigm and everybody's always arguing. Like you can clearly see that this is a setup so that everybody's fighting each other all the time and, you know, nobody's going to get united against this common oppressive force really. Um, and, and then, I've thought a lot about, you know, because I've, I've studied a lot of the political philosophy behind it all and everything. But of course, the, the left-right paradigm is really like this disagreement historically between these two guys, right, Hegel and Marx, and which what they call the end of history. They have this whole idea of this uh, materialist dialectic or this historical dialectic where the two forces are always going back and forth. And then there's, you know, the thesis, the antithesis, they, they fight each other and then they resynthesize into the new way. But it's this, you know, the whole historiosity of it or the whole concept behind it is that these radical revolutionary changes are, are what make change. And so it's interesting to, to kind of do a little comparison and contrast and say, wait a minute, what about this idea of the seventh generation and how different that is from like, there's these two forces in history, they're fighting each other. And then, you know, that they, they resynthesize after this incredible revolutionary moment or whatever, instead of replacing that with this, like, no actual healthy change happens in this long, slow, methodical kind of way. <laughs> it's not this radical revolutionary, all of a sudden in an instant, everything's different. I mean, just changing your mindset into like things that. like that, like that's a major shift, right? In, in, yeah. in psychology, yeah, it's it, important. I was just actually reading probably yesterday, the day before about kind of revisiting the end of history concept. And so it's interesting you bring that right. up, but yeah, I, I, I love that because so many people, whether, you know, people, there's a lot of right-wingers and conservatives and, and just libertarians and people who are concerned about the influence still of Marx and Marxism and things of that sort. Sure. But at the same time, don't realize how in many cases we're still arguing from within like foundations that, that they've laid, right? You know, it's like either this version of the dialectic or this version yeah. of that. You're still kind of within their con the confines of their philosophy right. instead of getting out of that. I mean, obviously Marx was influential, but I just, I just think that's interesting. People don't really understand how they're still being influenced by something that they oppose um, just by even expecting a version of history like that, something that, that comes from these great revolutionary moments. And then we're going to achieve the end of history or the, some new beginning, some new paradigm totally. yeah. rather than us changing individually as, as individuals. And then collectively that leads to change. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, Good you know, stuff, man. You bring it up, right? The idea of the end of history. I think this is exactly what these technocrats sort of delusionally imagine themselves as doing. You know, we're transcending the natural order of things, the natural progression of history. And now we can scientifically create this, you know, this post history culture that is just 
created out of pure science and pure technocracy, as long as we can control everything, you know, then every, it's almost it's this utopian thinking, right? <laughs> that they can create some perfect world. If only they could just control everybody, you know, and those pesky, <laughs> ignorant people would, wouldn't, would stop fighting them. <laughs> social engineering at its finest. I mean, that's what these people are, social engineers. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think going back to the Marxism, I mean, one of the things that I distrust about Marxism was his whole idea about replacing natural, you know, naturally grown culture with this sort of post-communist culture. Um, and, and it's, I don't know, you know, to me, if you really believe in diversity, then you believe in, in allowing cultures to grow as a natural, almost, or, you know, organically. And this whole concept of controlling culture and social engineering I mean, you're just going straight into this Dr. Frankenstein world. It's not. It's not going to end well. There's just no way. And I mean, I'm really never. I mean, I mean, Marx as like a historical figure is interesting to me because clearly, like I said, he's influenced so much of our world. Mm-hmm. But like, as far as the actual content of his work, I've never been that impressed. And I can't claim to have read everything that Marx or um, Engels ever ever wrote. But the thing is, at the end of the day. I can clearly see that he's just another authoritarian who is imagining yeah. how he would centrally plan society. And like, sure, he's claiming that it's going to lead to the best outcome ever in this utopia or whatever, but isn't that what every single tyrant who thinks that they can you know, make decisions for everybody thinks, that, that they're the, right. the best out there totally. and they got this thing figured out? And, and then they, they have unfortunately really co-opted, um, I mean, because these debates go you know, between Marx and it goes all the way back to the the anarchists from the mid 1800s that were that anarchists, both anarcho-communists who were against Marx and saw him as, uh, you know, a statist kind of authoritarian. And then even the individualist anarchists who were very active in America in the, the mid 1800s, Benjamin Tucker, Lysander Spooner, you know, these were the men of his, of his time as well. And we're only kind of told about the influence of Marx, but even back then there were anarchists who were saying like, this guy is, is like, he just wants power, you know, and whether or not he wants it, his ideas are inspiring more people to believe that. And they've sort of, since that time, have been able to co-opt the working class, as it were, where I think that the working class, if there was more of an individualist, not even anarchist movement, but just individualist in general, Mm -hmm. where people stop seeing themselves as these collectives that move and live together and the collective good is more important than the individual, then I think there could be a lot more unity in that front. But instead they have... Mm -hmm. The Marxist idea has led to, you know, identity politics and different things like that, that just break down people into smaller and smaller groups. And not to say that there aren't interesting things like I personally have, I find a lot of interesting and uh, even important insights from looking at the intersection of race or class or some of these different things that, again, were influenced by 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 Marx's thoughts, but I don't think that they should be the be all end all that we the way we judge individuals, you know, just right. on these various identities. And so it gets into really prob- problematic areas. And I've just never really been that impressed. But the one thing I do know that Konkin, Samuel Konkin uh, with Agorism, he actually was writing, he had one essay that was unfinished and then another kind of agorist named Wally Conger, he came along and, and kind of updated it. And it's really interesting because Konkin actually takes on the idea that Marx put forward of class. You know, he believed in that class is what separates people and that there's a struggle between the classes. And that's what is going to inevitably lead to some sort of revolution. The capitalist class, the bourgeoisie and, you know, the proletariat, all these kinds of concepts. Right. Well, Konkin says that 
that Marx made a big mistake and most Marxists by ignoring the entrepreneur, that they just sort of lump in the capitalist. And in Konkin's view, which I think is a more accurate historical view, markets do not necessarily equal capitalism. That you know, the historical use of capitalism as as it has been known was using state privilege, was people, you know, that sort of elitist class using their capital to work with the state and you know what we would consider statism. So I'm not really right. a person who's in like in in has an interest in saving the word capitalism, but I know people use it meaning a different thing. But I think the market is a more accurate uh, term for that. And so Konkin mm-hmm. is basically saying like they they break people down into either you're working your working class or you're part of the bourgeoisie, you know, you're part of the elite class and there's no sort of room for the individual who's just an entrepreneur, right? They just see everybody as a collective. So we're all workers, we all come together. So workers interest, you know, so that we have to have somebody centrally planning to make sure everything's equal, right? But what about the individual entrepreneur who's just some, you know, has a business in front of their house or, you know, goes around and sells fruit or whatever it may be. There's no room for that person in their system. And so that's where Konkin says, like, that's just a huge gap in Marxist way of thinking because calling every single person out there who's trying to make a dollar survive a capital part of the capitalist class and treating them the same as the same you would like the Rockefellers or the Bill Gates right. is just silly, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, so he really calls attention to that as, as uh, well as other flaws in their thinking. Well, this is such an important point. I mean, I can't, you know, I've spent time on Facebook anarchy groups and getting into it with it because I, I wanted to have an open mind, especially since I came from a, a libertarian perspective, I wanted to have an open mind to the, to the more left-wing perspectives. And ultimately I found out that they, it's like everyone's using the term capitalism differently. Like whatever you think, you can't have an argument if you haven't defined your terms. So if everybody's having an argument, but their term, this term capitalism means something different for everybody, then you're not having, a, a, you know, it's not, it's never going to be a reasonable conversation. It's like gibberish. It's just a waste of time. And I've seen so, so much time wasted over this one term capitalism for exactly the reason that you're saying. I mean, some people equate capitalism with this corporate system, which I think you and I, and, and I mean, I would imagine any thinking person is going to have a problem with, you know, imposing dependencies on people, you know, taking it, obviously taking advantage of labor, monopolizing markets, using government force. I mean, it's just an extension of statism as this corporate system. I mean, it's corporate fascism, right? We have a term for it. It's called fascism. It's not good. Nobody wants this, right? Um, except for these elite people that are profiting immensely off of it. But, you know, any thinking, caring person is not going to desire this. And then just ignoring the fact that there is this whole entrepreneur class of people who are just running a restaurant or, you know, uh, wanting to have a backyard garden where maybe they could sell some tomatoes for a little extra money or whatever it is, or being able to make herbal medicines and sell it for a little extra cash, you know, on, on that gray market. <laughs> Um, because that's what you got to do. I mean, these people aren't bad people. They're not evil capitalists. And then I also think, too, one of the more interesting things that I've noticed, and I keep trying to get this across, this left-right paradigm gets in the in in people's, I mean, they just can't see beyond it. It's It's frustrating, is that the quote-unquote capitalist class seems to be funding these communist revolutions. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. Like, if capitalism... I mean, to to my mind, and I think it's the same with technocracy. Technocracy is just another form of utopia, just like they used communism 150 years ago as it's going to be this perfect scientific system. 
Now it's the scientists and they've got everybody to buy in that the scientists are like this priest class and it's going to be a utopia if only we allow these people to have total authority over us. Um, but the wealthy people are funding all of this because it, it actually, I mean, to me, communism is a way of kind of tricking the proletariat class into accepting the centralization of the means of production. And so, of course, these really, really rich people are, they're trying to centralize the means of production. How are they going to do it? Well, they're, they're going to tell you it's a utopia. If, just let them do it's it. It's a dictatorship of the proletariat. Right. It's a dictatorship right. of the people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, we see the cycle. Well, I want to I just add to that, man, that yeah. you're totally right what you said earlier about, um, and it's something that I've really tried to emphasize, like in all of my books, whenever I realize that I'm using a term quite often that, and I go, I'm like, okay, well, let me make sure I've actually defined this somewhere in the beginning of the conversation so that right. people know what I'm speaking on. Cause like you said, we can have the conversation and, and social media is great for this talking past each other. Cause you're speaking from different definitions. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I've seen, I mean, one of the biggest divides between different types of anarchists is the use. Well, I guess the couple that I see is the use of violence whether that's legitimate or not. Mm -hmm. um, basically, whether you support property, obviously that's a huge argument. And that again is like, well, what definition, what do you mean by personal property? What do you mean by private property? Let's actually make sure we don't mean the same thing in different words, you know? Totally, totally. And, uh, and then of course, like whether or not you support capitalism, but of course, what definition are you using to define that? You know, and that, that, there's a lot of debates that go into that, but these divides have, have, persisted for 200 years now and and you're right the people that benefit are the the whatever we want to call them i call them the predator class you can call them capitalist class whatever yeah. or they're the technocrats these days that's what they're doing now yeah. and yeah they'll sell it to people as communism socialism they'll sell it to them as capitalism but at the end it's them in control it's them central planning and and i think you're right that they sell it to the to the working class, that's kind of what I was saying earlier, is I think that the working class has been co-opted for uh, 150 to 200 years now by totally. these people. And, you know, you don't really see much libertarian working class organizing, you know, like libertarians don't get involved in trying to, you know, wh whatever people's uh, feelings on unions, the point is that people aren't on, libertarians aren't on the job, like out there, even if right. you were like anti-union, they're not out there talking to people and saying why this is a better philosophy, ideology, etc., and, and so I think there's just, there's a lot of gaps in, in these areas because people seem to stick to their own dogmas. That's why, I mean, for me personally, around 2016, I made a conscious decision to stop spending so much energy with the libertarians. I still consider myself of that same ideal uh, philosophy, probably even more refined than I was when I was active with those at those events and with those mm. people. But I just started to see the same debates over and over and over and the same like philosophical circle jerking after a while. Like, you know, I love, like I'm, deep in anarchist uh, history and philosophy. I mean, I just got this one that I'm excited about. This is individualist feminism of the 19th century, talking about like the anarcho-feminists that were actually individualists that didn't believe in this collective, you know, yeah. all men are bad or anything like that. There's good stuff here, but just another example, I see a lot of libertarians, anarcho-capitalists completely dismiss feminism because of what they see in the world today. And there's just, there's a lot of lack of knowledge, I think of historical understanding and, you know, it's important, at least for me, to have that context. So if you're trying to build bridges, you can actually do it if you actually know what the other people are reading and saying and talking about, as opposed to just dismissing it because it's the other side, you know. Well, that's just exactly what you're saying, building bridges. I mean, I feel like first things first, if we're going to, if we're going to 
whatever, if we're going to win this, you know, whatever this fight is, if we're going to stop the predator class, like you're talking about, we have to build bridges between the left and the right. It's just something I've, I've felt this way for a long time. And the point that you're making about um, how these, the libertarians on the right, or, you know, the, the anarcho-capitalists, if you will, they're, they're like nerds. They sit around and they argue amongst themselves. On the activism side, that's where you see the people who are more progressive-leaning or left-wing thinkers or whatever. And we have to have this balance between these two. Like, the, the bridge is right there, right? You've got to have the thinkers. Because I do agree... I think the the sort of the right the quote unquote right wing thinkers are thinking really well, but these people on the left that are doing the activism part, I mean, you've got to have the activism as well. We've got to find again that that middle path between the left and the right, or whatever. I mean, you know, let's try to transcend this left right paradigm where people want to fight each other. It's not about fighting each other. It's got to be about figuring out how to work together, because you need the people who are activists and you need the people who are thinkers. And if they were working together and they had some kind of cohesive philosophy to work together and actually getting something done on the ground, like, I mean, we can go into talking about your freedom cells idea, um, but trying to figure out how to actually organize. Cause I've done some political work here in Northern California, but it's very much like what you're talking about. The people that I was working with were all progressives, you know, and I had to learn how to, adjust my perception to to be able to have respect for their point of view and then try to inject occasionally you know well this is why i believe in individualism you know or the importance of of setting boundaries against what the the quote-unquote collective or the government can do to us um but also kind of figure out well how do i adjust my thinking so that i can work with these people without you know without getting into conflict it's it's kind of a challenge but it's a a worthy challenge yeah, and I agree with you there, man. I mean, it's, uh, I think that there's a lot of, for all the beautiful things of social media and internet, I've realized that a lot of people live through the internet and haven't so much, like, no, there's obviously social media activism can play a great role, and it has over the last decade or more. Uh, but there's a lot of folks who I think sort of grew up with their activism on the internet and haven't put much time on the ground, out there talking to people, engaging with people, and especially not as you just mentioned, engaging with people that you know you don't necessarily agree with, but because whatever the cause is is important enough to you, you're not just going to immediately leave the second somebody expresses an opinion you don't like or that you disagree with. You know, you hear their side, and like you said, when there's a respectful, open opportunity to, well, here's the way I feel about that. Have you ever thought about this? You know, and that's how people learn. That's how we grow. But there's not enough of that, you know, that I've seen, and I've seen the Houston activism seen, if you will, for the last 10 years, become more and more divisive than ever. And I think it's probably similar in most major cities where there's no longer coalitions. Like when we first started the Houston Freethinkers in 2010, about a year later, Occupy, the Occupy movement launched. And so there was Occupy Houston, Houston Freethinkers. And some of the biggest marches we did were collaborative marches where we were, we had our Houston Freethinkers out there camping with them. Some of us were camped out at the park that they were at. And we would screen movies. Sometimes we would get on like Freedom to Fascism or a Federal Reserve documentary. Right. And some of the socialist leftists would be like, oh, this is garbage. But they would, we would still play it and they would play their things. And, you know, some people accused us of trying to take things over. But generally people understood we were just another group that also gave a damn about what the banks were up to and wanted to collaborate. And some of the biggest actions, we did a collaborative march that made the news all around the city. We had hundreds of people. And it was led by the Houston Freethinkers, which we were definitely more 
independent libertarian, even though we never identified that way, you know, you could kind of see where we were at yeah. and the Occupy movement. And we both came together to march on the, uh, the representatives and the federal building, their offices when the NDA was passed, whenever Obama passed the uh, indefinite detention of American citizens, mm-hmm. we did another big collaborative march when it was like one of the internet pills, I think SOPO, when they were trying to pass that back in that time period. And so we were coming together on that. There's been so many big police brutality marches where there's the, um, what do they call themselves? The, they're Baba Vakian revolutionary communist or something like that. You know, we had them, you had, the Houston Freethinkers, you had the Peaceful Streets Project, you had the, uh, you know, Cop Block and a mix of cop accountability activists that would come together for these types of events. But now where we're at, it's like if you show up at an event like that and you're not 100% ideologically aligned with whoever the organizer is, you're likely to get shouted down or just mm-hmm. make clear you're not welcome or so- these sorts of things. And there's no real effort to build bridges anymore that I've seen. And, and I think it's just, it's one of the worst things that things have gotten more divisive because the answer is to, to build those bridges. Cause I mean, without a doubt, who is sitting back laughing while we're all fighting in the streets or yelling at each other on the internet and making memes about each other. The people up there are absolutely sitting back and just enjoying the heck out of it. I mean, it, it couldn't yeah. be more clear that the more divisive that we are against each other, the less time we're spending. And not to say that, there's not time for these philosophical debates and discussion, but at the same time, we've got to be like, okay, these things have been happening for 200 years. We've been arguing about the same things for 200 years. Maybe some of us just can't work together. Maybe some of you need to figure out how to communicate better. I mean, there's a lot of that going around, but why not focus on solutions? And I've always been very solutions based, which is why to me, like Konkin's got a couple of books that are written, but they're not very long because agorism is basically just like opt out, get out of their system. You know, there's, you know, he's got some, some philosophy behind it for those who want to go deep, but that's really what it comes down to. Get out, get your money out of their bank, get your money out of their system, take away your financial support from that system. Like it's just, that's what it is, you know? And so there's not a whole lot of need for, uh, you know, just philosophizing about everything. There's, it's just an action oriented, you know, even with what he wrote, he called it a three anarchy, Agora and action. And, you know, it's very action oriented. And I actually, the first public speech I ever gave was in 2013 and I proposed adding a fourth A to that, which was bringing in the spiritual component, and it was for awareness or mindfulness. So we had the four A's, anarchy, agora, action, and awareness. So, you know, there's. I think that's just where I'm trying to spend my time with my activism. My journalism is action-oriented. I'm done with uh, just debating people. I'm done with just, you know, I've got my books, and I put it out there. Here's my beliefs on the philosophy and the questions about these various, you know, theoretical ideas that we may or may never, ever have to deal with. That's out there if people want to read that. But now to me is like we got to build. We got to connect with people who are like minded, no matter whatever they identify with. If we can find an issue to agree with and work together, then let's do that. If we can't, then have a nice life. I'm going to focus on who I can build with, you know. Well, why don't we, with the last couple of minutes we have here, why don't you explain um, the whole freedom cell concept to people and we can maybe try to get people to get go to the website and check it out. I know, uh, I guess you probably, you just had uh, a phone meeting the other day, Saturday, huh? I've, I've been, I've actually participated in one of these just to learn more about it. It was, a, it was about a month ago, I guess now, um, but it's definitely yeah. worthwhile. Yeah, so the website is freedomcells.org. That's C-E-L-L-S.org, like the cells in your body. And 
Freedom Cells is the website, first of all, is is meant to be somewhat of a social network, but not a place where you're posting pictures of your cat or your food or things like that. Mm. Uh, but a place where you can go on, create a profile. What are your skills? What are your goals? What are your interests? You can search and find other people with similar skills and interests. The main component is the map that we have. We actually have two maps. One is the individual map where you can go on and say you're in California. You can search your your city and find people within 10, 20, 50, 100 miles of you and uh, connect with them in person with the goal of actually meeting in the real world. You can also use the second map, which is the cell map or the group map and find people who have already formed cells or groups. And so essentially what we mean by freedom cell, it's a peer-to-peer decentralized group of seven to nine people. The ideal number is eight. And there's some, uh, some research behind that number that are organizing themselves in a completely decentralized manner to improve the individual's lives as well as to improve the collective eight people there uh, by sharing skills, sharing ideas, um, again, learning self-defense skills, being that core group that you can kind of lean on and depend on. And the goal is that we're you know, creating these, say, North Houston, and then we start encouraging people, hey, if you guys have a group down there on the other side of Houston or you know, a town away, form your own group there. And then you have those inner groups but then at the same time, we can start forming kind of larger regional groups, like say another group of eight people that live uh, in another part of town. And then whenever we have bigger tasks, maybe, for example, we schedule a permaculture action day and all the different freedom cells around Houston go out and plant some trees or build some gardens. You know, we do bigger tasks working together or we all decide, hey, let's come together and build this home for one of our neighbors who lost it in the recent hurricane or something like that. So you're building individual autonomy within the group sharing skills, sharing ideas. The idea being that, like you were just saying, there's no centralization. There's no one leader who is kind of running things that the power is diffused and the knowledge is diffused. So for example, if you wanted to make sure that everybody in the group could, you know, do CPR in case of emergency, well, you take a class together. That way you know that, okay, all eight of us here can take care of somebody if they're choking or whatever. There's not like, hey, where's so-and-so, the one person who knows how to do it, you know? Uh, you maybe you all decide you want to learn more about permaculture, so you sign up for a permaculture course together, or you start watching permaculture documentaries together, and you share different ideas and and, and research and study together. Maybe you guys decide you want to learn about aquaponics, so you break that topic up between your group. You two take you know what we're going to need, what materials. You two take what building, you know all these different things, whatever it may be, and then you come back and share that knowledge with each other. And the goal is that as we're building these decentralized circles, these cells, I've had people call them hubs, hives, whatever. I mean, the name really doesn't matter. We just have called them freedom cells now for about five years or so. And you're building these pockets of, you know, cells that are also hopefully pulling away from the system. Maybe everybody's getting into alternative currency, cryptocurrency, or bartering together. So it kind of works into the agorist idea, even though it's not necessarily explicitly an agorist thing it helps people break away and have that support system. And so as we're creating these pockets, we start to create bigger groups that then can network together on the citywide level, on the statewide level, national, and eventually international. I mean, the concept has really exploded since COVID-19 began. We now have 3,500 members who have joined from all around the world. You can see the map. It's actually pretty cool and impressive to see just, you know, after years and years of talking about this, seeing people really start to embrace it, seeing the number of cells growing. And yeah, we're doing these monthly uh, international conference calls that have people from all around the world tuning in. We had one just yesterday. We had about 80 people for two hours or so. I shared a little bit. Uh, John Bush, who's another activist who's on my website, who's actually the original guy who kind of got the idea in my head. 
he talked a little bit and then we had some people from Oklahoma, Atlanta, and, um, uh, Texas share about what their cells are doing, what they've been up to, how they've been very successful, what's worked for them and what hasn't. So it truly is a decentralized like peer-to-peer network that's helping bring people together. And my goal is that the map could be used for, for traveling. You know, when you're traveling, you can find like minds who can hopefully plug you into where the farmer's markets are, where the community's at, where the other activists are, where just other good people are that you can trust. And also helping people find each other because the goal is using the website to find each other to have real world meetings, to start meeting in person and actually organizing and creating this parallel network that for some people will lead to buying land and living together. Maybe for some people, it'll just be a support system they use in their town or city. And for some people, it might just be a new set of friends that they can at least talk with. You know, people are using it in a different way because that's the beauty of decentralization. I've put out some essays and some ideas. I've got, we've got a whole playlist on how it can be applied in different situations. Uh, but ultimately, it will be whatever people make it be, because that's what decentralization is about. If people choose to take on it and really create a parallel network that can replace the current government and we create a new, beautiful society, then it'll do that. But if people are uh, timid or afraid or uh, slow to move or just you know doubtful, then maybe it'll just be a cool concept on paper. But mm-hmm. so far, we've seen it really, really growing at a rapid pace. So I'm excited. And again, the website is freedomcells.org. Really recommend everybody just check it out and get on there. And if you're feeling lonely and thinking you're alone, there, there might be a chance that uh, there's somebody on the website that you can at least connect with. And that might at the very least be a new friend that you can talk about what's going on in the world. You know, I think that's actually an important point. I uh, even just myself getting on there and seeing that, man, there's a couple of people here in Mendocino County who are also members. You know, it was like, okay, great. There, I do have some some more like-minded people than I even knew about uh, just kind of here close by that I can get in touch with. Um, but I think the other great thing about this is even I, I could see it because I really do think that if we want to think ahead um, and we want to prepare for what may be happening. I mean, this is a this is a pretty big push for the technocracy right now. And in terms of these COVID passports and, um, you know, the contact tracing that's going on and a lot of this stuff, it may very well be coming to a position where we're all going to have to make a choice whether we want to participate or whether we don't want to participate. And if we don't, then, um, you know, real economic distribution is going to be a thing. We're going to need to get supplies, uh, food and medicines and, and, uh, just having a communications network like this, that's uh, there and available. And, you know, somebody, there's a cell that's on the coast. We could trade seaweed or we could trade fish for what we're growing inland. And, you know, just kind of having that communication just to, just to kind of develop this, uh, underground economy. That really might be something that that we're going to have to make that choice. You know, if we don't want to get the vaccine, it's, you know, I'm starting to think like, huh, I mean, I'm definitely putting in a, a big garden, right? <laughs> and uh, and then it's going to be really important to trade with your friends. If your friends uh, have the ability to make alcohol or they can make medicines or you can grow the herbs and they can make the alcohol, things like this. I mean, these are the kind of, of ways that we're going to need to be thinking and I mean, it's almost be a good thing if it does come to that, because I think that people, if you have to make a choice to just end your dependency on the current system, then get involved with something like this, uh, this freedom cells idea and see how far you can take it and just how much you can be, uh, you know, your own individual that doesn't have 
uh, not dependent on this larger system for your needs, uh, for your energy needs, for your food source, for your medicines. Um, so I hope people really take it seriously and I'll definitely throw, throw that, uh, website up in the show notes and on the introduction so that people will be able to find it. Um, it's a great resource. And then I guess, again, before we leave, maybe you could talk a little bit about your plans for what's happening in Mexico. I'd also like you to bring up the, the Bill Gates day. I assumed that we were going to talk about Bill Gates quite a bit, but we never really did. We touched on the whole tech, technocratic thing, so we talked around it. But, I, but go ahead and, and plug that while I have you here. And, and then maybe a little quick discussion about this underground railroad idea, just in case it does become difficult for people to travel. Yeah, so some of those ideas are, I mean, it's all sort of interrelated. Uh, the first thing I will say is that you were kind of touching on is that the COVID is a catalyst one way or the other. It's a catalyst. If you were, do not like the life you were leading before COVID-19, you know, before the quote unquote new normal, this is your opportunity to change it. And you're either going to be complacent and you're going to change it for your own you know, reasons and the ways you want to go, or you're going to be swept up in their great reset, their new normal. And uh, the change will come that way. So use this as a catalyst to move forward into if you if you've known the problems for a long time but haven't really stepped up to take you know some solutions on this is the time and, and you might not have so many other opportunities. So absolutely do that. And as far as Mexico, it is basically a economic underground railroad that I also wrote about in how to opt out of the technocratic state. And basically. It's also, it kind of fits in with freedom cells. So it's a good thing to end with like freedom cells. We're building this network of, of people and individuals and groups, right? And people hopefully will start being able to trade together and coordinate together and come to each other's aid whenever things get dicey. That's another big part of it. Um, but I also do believe that because the United States is kind of the central point of this right now, we know that these people would like the United States to succumb to tyranny and that the idea of individual liberty that has been strong in the United States to disappear completely. So I know that they're focused hard on the United States. I don't know if the United States is salvageable, but what I do know is that I have family and friends and people who I love and care about who are not quite on board or on the same page of this yet, but I know that they will in time. I know that they will see these things in time and it might be a little too late for them then as far as being able to just cross across the border without any kind of trouble. Um, and I made a post about this on social media yesterday. There's already refugees from the United States and from other Western nations that people just haven't quite caught on to yet. I'm sure the state's realizing it. I'm sure the state is recognizing that many people are starting to head south or head north or head you know, across the ocean mm-hmm. and looking for greener pastures. And it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening in Australia and lots of other uh, Western nations. And other parts of the world, India included, that are seeing the te- te- technocracy and the tyranny coming. And so for me, I'm going south towards Mexico. Um, I, ha- I have uh, some friends and family throughout there, and I was born in Houston. But I, and so but the last four years, I've got to know Mexico and really love the culture, love the land. And I think that for the moment, it does offer some uh, measures of freedom and, and liberty that are increasingly less available in the United States, I'll say. And of course, that doesn't mean the Mexican government or any of the situation there is perfect, but that's the direction that I've been moving in is going down there. So I was there for two and a half months uh, earlier in the year, scouting, looking for land, kind of have our own little freedom cell there. And I'll be headed back in the next two weeks to continue that search. We've got a few good properties that we're checking out. And the goal is to just look for, get this land. And as I mentioned, I'm taking this permaculture course and to just start, yeah, getting organized and, and really planting some food in the ground, building a community and a network of communities. You know, so part of it is 
trying to establish a safe space so that if and when my family, friends, and other people who reach out, because I've had 300 or so people reach out from all around the world who are terrified of what's going on. And when people look to, I need somewhere to go, I believe that we, we again, and being forward thinking, we would be better off if we start planning ahead and there is a somewhere to be. You know, it's not just like head for the hills, run away. Where are you going to go? I mean, some people will choose to stay and that's fine. I will probably be back to the United States to protect and defend what I love if it comes to that. But in the meantime, I would like to have something to build on. Like I said earlier, it doesn't have to be a necessarily a doom and gloom situation. It can just be a choice that we're trying to live better, that there's another better way to live. And for me, I don't feel like I'll be able to do what I want to do by purchasing land in the United States, the direction things are going. Like I feel like I'll have much more freedom sort of disappearing into the countryside of Mexico and being able to build and not have to pay all kinds of permits to do things on my own land and all kinds of restrictions. And I don't see this as abandoning the United States. Like I mentioned, if things get hairy or people I love don't want to leave, uh, I will come back to to help however I can, especially if things do break out into some sort of physical altercation, which we all hope and pray it won't, but um, seems more inevitable. But in the meantime, I want to make sure there's a somewhere for people to get to. I would like to help build a patchwork, a network of communities and safe houses and places that people can get to. You know, whenever whenever I was in Morelia, in Mexico, most recently, we got a, we rented a big apartment with a big house with extra rooms that I didn't need just so that other people who were coming could have a place to put their head down when they were uh, they got there. Mm-hmm. And we were able to help uh, a young mother and her daughter, another anarchist friend from Chicago who happened to be coming that way or were looking to get out. And they stayed with us for a couple months while they figured things out. I think these things are going to be important and necessary as people are coming, especially if they come to Mexico or wherever they go, they're coming to new countries that they don't know much about where they might not speak the language. I mean, this is the nature of being a refugee, of running away from something to try to find temporary you know, a refuge. So I think that that's, that's where things are heading. And I've just sort of chosen, I guess, to take on that role of um, trying to kickstart something like that. And people are responding really well. And so the, the Mexico project is basically that, like laying down the foundation for the Underground Railroad, as well as trying to get land for my own um, home that me and my partner are trying to build, as well as hopefully having adjacent, enough property and adjacent land where we can build a network of communities and everybody can be if not living on the same piece of property right near each other and next to each other to start building that, as well as, of course, networking with the Mexican people out there who many of them see through this COVID and think it's bullshit, especially when you go up into the smaller towns where they're just like living in a totally different world. You know, they're not plugged into all this. But yeah, so that's kind of um, and then as far as Bill Gates and all that, I mean, we did expose Bill Gates days. We did two of them, one in June, and we just recently had another one. And we're now calling for Every second Saturday of every month, if you're interested, you want to get active, whether online or in the real world, I've got a web the webpage set up. It's just theconsciousresistance.com slash Bill Gates. It explains everything there. It's got links to flyers and to more info that you can print out and kind of make your own. And I'm still getting people emailing me about it. So I think it, it is a growing concept. Of course, Bill Gates more, it's about what he represents, which is the technocratic class, the technocracy uh, and what they're trying to erect using COVID. And the reason I focused on him and James Corbett and others have is because clearly since this whole thing began, he's become the spokesperson for this agenda, you know, all over TV and all over that. So it seems like it's a crucial moment to attack the caricature version of himself that he's presenting to the the kind of mainstream population and to help them see 
who he really is, who he really represents and what their agenda is, which is complete control. And there's definitely a eugenics element to it, you know, and the first, uh, first exposable Gates day did go viral and it was trending on Twitter and elsewhere. We got a few articles written about us. The second one, it seemed like there was clearly a block on the, the hashtag, which is to be expected. Right. But the whole thing is don't just rely on social media, you know, get it, print out some flyers, talk to people. I've been hosting documentaries means at that you know i mean pretty much this is my life you know dedicating it to trying to wake people up to the technocracy trying to focus on the solutions so that i don't drive myself crazy because if i was just sitting here watching this happen and doing nothing i would feel a little bit nuts i would be panicked right now but since i know i'm doing everything i can to try to encourage people to look at the solutions to learn how to grow their own food to unplug from these systems to work on their own trauma and i'm actively doing those things i feel like I'm giving it everything I can. And the more of us who do that, then the better off we're going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I for one, uh, really appreciate your work. I'm glad you're out there doing it. It's been great. And, I, and I'm actually with you in terms of uh, thinking about getting the hell out of the United States. It just seems like this the technocratic hold here is so powerful. It's kind of like your this whole um, concept of agorism and the counter economy. And just to be able to go to some place where, you know, the the powers that be aren't so dominant. I mean, you know, I do live out in the country and just being in the country, even in the United States is easier than living in a city. Um, But I can see going to a place like Mexico or even South America um, where it's just more based on individual relationships, one-on-one, even if you have to grease some palms of the, of the local, you know, constable or whatnot, at least you're participating in this one-on-one relationship. You're getting things done. You're able to be, uh, you know, an, an individual in the world without having to fear getting sucked into this whole uh, technocratic system that that seems like is coming faster and faster every day. So, so thanks for what you're doing. Should we point people to the consciousresistance.com to find out more about your work? Maybe um, I would also recommend going to the lastamericanvagabond.com where you have a page that's got a lot of your uh, your written work, your journalism. Yeah, all my articles are at The Last American Vagabond, and pretty much everything else I publish, my videos are all at The Conscious Resistance, and uh, yeah, man, I appreciate the conversation, and thanks for all that you do. Yep, for sure. Absolutely, Derek. Thanks for coming on, and uh, keep keep on keeping on. Um, we'll keep pointing people in your direction, and I, and I hope my listeners uh, will get turned on to some of your stuff and, and maybe think about participating in, in this Freedom Cell Network as well. So uh, thanks again. And uh, have a great day. Hope we keep in touch. Thank you, brother. Yep, you bet. Take care. Well, all right, everybody. And there you have it. That was the 50th episode of The Shift with activist and citizen journalist Eric Bros. I was really excited to talk to this guy. I've been following him for a number of years. I, I think I feel a little bit of a close connection with him just because we're both from the Houston area. I grew up just outside of Houston. So uh, it's always nice to see one of my hometown Boys actually, uh, you know, doing some really, really good work out there and just um, kind of watching Derek develop and grow as a journalist over the last, about, it's probably been at least four or five years since I've been following him, uh, has been a real pleasure. One of the things like I brought up in the introduction is this combination of uh, psychological and spiritual healing uh, that he really infuses his political philosophy and his journalistic work with is something that I really appreciate. I don't think people do this enough. Uh, a part of making the shift is certainly, uh, I think actually, frankly, healing from the trauma that all of us and our families, uh, the generational trauma that our families have felt 
uh, over the hundreds of years of being part of this great Roman Empire experiment. You know, at one point we were all indigenous. Uh, I think Derek and I even had a little bit of a discussion about this. He mentions that he's been doing uh, some some sweat lodges and, and uh, participating maybe a little bit in the Sundance as well. Um, and so it's all, it's, uh, I, I guess I, I was uh, really happy to hear that actually, that he's got this experience uh, with the Native American ceremony. Um, because I think that we all have so much to learn from those guys. So to hear that Derek has taken it to that level and is uh, learning from the indigenous people, because all of us come from indigenous roots, right? And then at some point or another, uh, one empire or another uh, came in, uh, took us out, pulled us from our spiritual ceremonies, uh, and incorporated us into this larger uh, colonized system of empire. And uh, I think learning about and going back to those indigenous roots actually is going to be a really important part of, of uh, making this process that, uh, as you all are starting to understand, I'm calling the shift, but whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, a healing uh, from the trauma of being pulled away uh, from the Mother Earth in this way and being colonized into this uh, empire consciousness, as I describe it a bit. So um, brought out some of those really good ideas in talking to Derek, and he just does so much uh, other good work. I was really happy to see, uh, for those of you, I think episode 39 of The Shift is uh, with Ryan Christian uh, of The Last American Vagabond, and just within the last year, I think Derek and Whitney Webb both got picked up by Ryan over there at thelastamericanvagabond.com, and so Derek's uh, journalistic work is posted up there. It's great. I love to see uh, all three of those guys working together. Actually, I love their work, especially breaking free from the left-right paradigm, really working to try to unify people against uh, this broader corporate government system that is just taking so much of the resources from the land and not giving back to the working class that's that's uh, actually doing the production. <laughs> and so, so um, especially since this uh, collapse of the economy that started in March, we've seen so much money going upwards uh, into the billionaire class and uh, so much money uh, that is not getting produced by the lower classes. I'm afraid that as things progress, we're going to see so much dependency on the government, corporate, uh, these uh, private-public partnerships coming together to to help us because, as they like to say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, they'll be using this crisis to make us ever more dependent, which then gets us uh, to the whole concept of opting out and uh, Derek's new book, opting out of the, how to opt out of the technocratic state and this concept of agorism, which you know, as uh, those of you who have listened to this show, I often will interview anarchists of different stripes. I uh, have another one actually coming up next week, so we'll dive a little bit deeper into anarchy there too. But this concept of agorism is something that I hadn't really delved into too much, and so I was really happy to get into it with Derek. Uh, just about the idea of being able to set up uh, our own separate marketplace distinct from uh, this uh, predator class distribution system. Again, as, as Derek describes, the upper class as the predator class kind of feeding off of all of us, taking more, way more than their fair share of the resources by controlling the marketplace. And uh, Derek's idea, which I totally agree with, is, hey, like, let's just separate ourselves from this system. Let's just do our own thing. And so uh, I urge all of you to go to freedomcells.org. Uh, I'll post it in the show notes. 
so that you can go check it out. The network is a, a really interesting concept, and I think uh, it could become highly functional, especially as things progress. If you've seen some of my other interviews recently, uh, some of the roundtable discussions that I've been doing at Transparent Media Truth, we've been talking a lot about this potential separation that may be occurring where, you know, if you don't take the vaccine, if you don't take this coronavirus vaccine, then you're not going to be allowed into your bank account. You're not going to be allowed to shop at these stores. You're not going to be allowed to travel. Uh, Derek's been talking about setting up a kind of an underground railroad where he can help people get out of the country uh, if you want to leave the United States, if you want to find a safer place where, where the technocracy isn't going to be so powerful here in the next five years as it seems to be rolling out. Um, so lots of interesting ideas, and I like uh, the concepts of self-sustainability. He talked a little bit about permaculture, taking this permaculture class, and he's really uh, living it, living the philosophy by wanting to move down to Mexico and uh, create a community down there that can be separate from this larger system, and it doesn't have to participate in the technocracy. So he is uh, living his philosophy, um, that kind of integrity you don't see very often. So... Uh, again, just really happy to have had this conversation with Derek. I think a lot of us uh, have a lot to learn from his point of view and uh, certainly from his passion. Uh, and the fact that as I was writing that introduction, I'm just realizing that uh, he's done so much from writing books to uh, writing blog posts to producing documentaries and videos and podcasts and music. Uh, but also doing a lot of political activism, including uh, the run for mayor, which I don't think we talked about in the, uh, in the interview just now, but um, he ran for mayor of Houston. Not really expecting to win, of course, but just to get help get the word out about the 5G issue and the myriad of other issues from an alternative point of view, getting outside of the left-right paradigm and getting outside of the traditional... A corporate government narrative and just educating people about the, the possibilities, what local community government could really be about. So uh, it's uh, just great that he does all of this work. I think we all have a lot uh, to learn from him. So I urge you all to go to consciousresistance.com and check out what he's been doing. There's a lot of good stuff there. He's been really active for at least the last 10 years in the scene. So he's compiled quite a bit of work uh, and a lot to learn from, especially this concept of agorism, this idea of just uh, liberating yourself from the system, doing something completely different. Uh, so again, uh, freedomcells.org, if you want to look into the network and uh, the consciousresistance.com for all of Derek's work. Uh, also, thelastamericanvagabond.com, where he's getting published there, all of his journalism work. So you can find him there. And uh, just to close it up, I will remind all of you that you've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKinty. You can find my information at The Shift with Doug McKinty on YouTube or Facebook. I am at D. McKinty on Twitter. And, uh, of course, you can find... All of my work, uh, including some of my older stuff, my older radio work, and uh, this new podcast I'm working on with Transparent Media Truth called The Roundtable Discussions, uh, plus all of the Shift episodes up at theshiftnow.com. So think about hitting that up and checking it out. I've been doing quite a bit of work trying to upgrade uh, the website, so hopefully it's functioning a little bit better for everybody now. I'm, I'm about to start getting really busy myself. Uh, so please, you know, think about hitting that subscribe button and uh, joining for six bucks a month where you get the full length interview and uh, you get access to the membership forum. That would really help me out a lot. 
uh, and make it worthwhile to do this work. I'm fully dedicated at this point, but everybody's got to eat, so appreciate any help you might feel like giving on that front. And uh, anyway, we'll see you again next week. I've got Tanner Cook coming up. We're going to talk about anarchy and Nietzsche. So it'll be a fun philosophy conversation. I haven't had a chance to really get down with uh, anyone on uh, Nietzsche in quite some time. So I'm looking forward to that one. And, and I hope you are too. Hope we'll see you back for that. Um, and uh, so you all have a great week. And I hope you have a great day. And uh, I'll see you again soon. Take care.